Jay. Jay, it's it's time to record. Jay? Oh, oh, oh my God! I'm so sorry, Miles. Um, I look. I just saw Ghost Rider for the first time, and I'm having a lot of trouble focusing on anything else. Wait, like the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider movie? You know, honestly, if there is another one, I don't even want to know about it. I haven't seen it. How was it? I've heard stories. Okay, so it's. I mean. Honestly, language fails me here. I do really deeply respect how committed it is to, um, to whatever the hell it is. How true is it to the comics? You know, I haven't actually read a ton of Ghost Rider. He's super into Howler Monkeys, right? Not that I recall. Okay, so they must have added that. Um, but does he at least drink jelly beans out of a martini glass? What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 317 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. But in all seriousness, Jay, like, we do need to talk about X-Men, right? Not just the Ghost Rider movie? Maybe. I mean, the cold open was a little tongue-in-cheek, but... Honestly, it's, it's, it, it, it is kind of seared into my mind at this point. Seared into your brain as if by a flaming skull and or motorcycle and or chain? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. It's, the thing is, it's, I've, I've seen a fair number of Nicolas Cage movies. Not all of them by a, any stretch of the imagination, but a reasonable, respectable number of them. This might be the most Nicolas Cage movie I have seen in my life. And that includes, like, Raising Arizona and Mandy and National Treasure. Wow, I was going to bring up Mandy. Okay, well, that settles it. Uh, I've, I don't know much about Ghost Rider. I've always enjoyed the character. Nicolas Cage is never boring. I need to see this movie as soon as I can. I'm not kidding about the Jelly Beans thing, though. That, that does actually happen in the film. I mean, I would do that. Is, is that weird? I, it's a little Derek. It is a little Derek. Well, anyway, speaking of Nicolas Cage, actually, uh, Gambit is one of the focal characters in some of the comics we're going to be covering. We've already established that that casting would be golden. It would. And I, I, I don't think, you know, I, I could see people arguing that he is at this point too old for the role, but I don't think there's such, thi- such a thing because Nick Cage is really more of a concept than a human being anyway. Oh yeah, he's only a few years away from evolving into the platonic ideal of himself and just sort of floating around in the concept verse. One of the really weird things about Ghost Rider is that it starts with him much younger, like when he's in his late teens, and he's played by a different actor who looks nothing like Nick Cage. And T and I were talking about how, you know, it's sort of a stretch of the imagination that this kid grows up into Nick Cage, but then I realized it's kind of a stretch of the imagination for me to, to assume that any kid grows up into Nick Cage? Like, I genuinely can't picture him as a child or ever having been a child. Maybe it's like when you manifest your mutant power, but you just manifest becoming Nick Cage. Well, he does make a deal with the devil before becoming Nick Cage, so we thought that that might have something to do with it. But in general, like, like, when you try to picture Nick Cage as a kid, do you not just, like, picture Nick Cage but smaller? I really, really do. Yeah, you see what I mean here. I, I do. I also see some X-Men comics that we want to tell the internet about. Okay, but seriously, watch Ghost Rider. It's amazing. <laughs> Sam Elliott is in it, which is the best way to, to get me to see a movie, no questions asked. But also, Sam Elliott is legitimately in this. Word, and fair enough. Sam Elliott is not in any of the three issues we're going to be covering today. As we mentioned, Gambit is, as is Rogue. So let's look into what's happened previously on X-Men. Oh man, can you imagine Sam Elliott as Gambit? No. I can, and I've never liked Gambit this much. It's weird. Anyway. So, y'all know who these are, right? Remy LeBeau, Gambit, thief with the ability to charge objects with explosive purple energy, and a heart of gold kind of sometimes, but it's like sleazy gold. It's, it's, it's gold maybe with like a thick coating of Brycleam or something. That sounds right. Gambit joined the X-Men after rescuing a de-aged Storm from the Shadow King. It's complicated. 
Upon doing so, he quickly fell for... Rogue. Uh, Rogue is a sassy but sensitive southern belle with the uncontrollable power to absorb the powers, memories, and life forces of anyone she touches. Including the former Miz and current Captain, Marvel, Carol Danvers, whose flight, strength, and nigh invulnerability Rogue permanently and accidentally yoinked. Now, if you're a recent X-Men reader... You might just think of these guys as a married couple, as the most solid relationship there, but they were intensely on again, off again for decades before that, and the stuff that happened around this stuff is why. So, Rogue had joined the the X-Men after a brief stint working as a villain for her adoptive mom, Mystique, and she and Gambit got big crushes on each other, had a very angst-ridden courtship because obviously they couldn't touch each other and also they both had weirdly complicated pasts involving exes who were comatose and or assassins. Finally, when the world was about to end, Rogue and Gambit kissed. They figured Armageddon was a good way to get out of the consequences for the contact, but unfortunately for them, well, maybe, maybe unfortunately for them, Armageddon was averted. So, Gambit ended up in a coma, and Rogue ended up with bits and pieces of Gambit's memories that convinced her Gambit had a dark secret that he'd been hiding. Rogue doesn't know what that dark secret is, or at least doesn't quite have conscious access to it. But what she does know was enough to chase her away from the X-Mansion and onto a road trip with her friend and semi-chaperone Iceman. And Gambit, freshly decomed, is on his way to find her. Both to reestablish their relationship and to find out what, if anything, she actually knows of the stuff that he'd really prefer the X-Men not find out. Meanwhile, Professor X has been trying to rehabilitate the horrifying supervillain serial murderer Sabretooth after imprisoning him at the X-Mansion. Oh man, supervillain serial murderer Sabretooth is, is quite a phrase. Alliterative. This seems to be going better since Wolverine gave Sabretooth a claw bottomy and Sabretooth reverted to a gentle and almost childlike state. Evidence, however, implies that he's been faking it. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the massive Kentucky Guthrie family has now sent two of its children to join the various X-teams after they manifested mutant powers. How many children remain varies significantly depending on the telling. However, we know for sure that the two who have gone to do mutant stuff are... Cannonball, that's Sam Guthrie, who has gone from leading the New Mutants to X-Force to now the X-Men. And Paige, Husk, who's a founding member of Generation X. But Sam and Paige have a million or so siblings, again, depending on the story. So there's always drama at home to attend to. First, however, let's check in with the two most intense phonetic accents in the X-Men line, with X-Men 45, the enemy of my enemy. This issue is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Cam Smith, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings. And, Jay, I have some really sad news. Is, is it about Ghost Rider? It's not, although I think Fabian may have written some back in the day, at least a, an appearance. No, this is Fabian Nicieza's last issue of X-Men, and we already covered his last issue of X-Force, which means this is his last X issue at all for a number of years. Oh, damn, that is very much a shame. We've talked about this a lot on the show, but Fabian Nicieza, in a lot of ways, has really felt like the spiritual heir to Chris Claremont, and his runs on the X-Books are terrific. I gotta say, too, Gambit and Rogue's relationship is very, very unevenly written, and it tends to be a relationship that I either love or hate. And the way Nicieza writes these two makes everyone else who wrote them during this era looks so bad by comparison. Yeah, I think my next favorite Gambit and Rogue writer actually wouldn't be until way, way, way later with Kelly Thompson. Yeah, yeah, no, he makes me legitimately like Gambit, which is not a thing that happens a lot. Like, it, it has happened, it can happen, but it requires very, very deft writing. Well, in that case, I have some good news for you, because when Fabian Nicieza returns to Marvel a few years later, he's going to do a Gambit ongoing, along with a Thunderbolts ongoing for a very long time, and years after that, a Cable and Deadpool ongoing. So he'll be back, but never in as central a role as he was during the era that's now ending. But, you know, with phonetic accents, right? I, I assume so. I hope so. I haven't Nicieza, actually read the Gambit ongoing. Nicieza, too, like, in a lot of ways, I mentioned the Claremont-era parent things. And one of the things I really love about his work 
with Legacy Claremont stuff is that he's very, very good at distilling it to what works. He writes Gambit's phonetic accent much, much more legibly than Claremont does. And that's worth noting because the range of, of, of ways to screw that up is, is much, much wider than the range of ways to get it right. This is very true. And while that can be entertaining when it's done badly, it does kind of take you out of it a little bit. A little bit. So we already covered Uncanny X-Men number 325. That was a double-sized issue in honor of the 20th anniversary of Giant Size X-Men number one and the all-new, all-different team. And this came out around the same time. It is also a double-sized issue, and as such, also has another double gatefold cover. Four pages of action, or honestly, four pages of not much. Kind of like the cover to Uncanny number 325 that we weren't so into. This one just has Rogue and Gambit fighting, Iceman yelling and staring at Gambit's butt, and Sinister caping around in the background. And, like, you could easily have that on a standard-sized cover, so I feel like it's a little bit of a missed opportunity. Sinister is much larger and at an oblique angle to the rest of the cast, which I, I'm, I'm not sure what that says about anything. But yeah, it's, 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 a gr- it's gratuitously gatefolded. Gratuitously gatefolded. Speaking of awesome alliteration, or would that be excellent alliteration? No, it definitely wouldn't. No, you're, you're thinking of consonants. Mmm, fair. What we do have is the issue opening with Rogue throwing a goddamn boulder at Iceman, yelling, I told you to leave me alone! And I gotta say, Andy Kubert draws such a good Rogue. And one of the things I appreciate about his Rogue is that Rogue is actually muscular. Like, she doesn't really need to be, given her powers, given that her strength is just based on, like, Cree space nonsense when you come down to it. But I feel like Rogue is a character that focuses enough on her own physical experience of the world that she would absolutely work out a ton. I mean, even if that wasn't a standard thing for all of the X-Men doing Danger Room stuff. In order to give her an effective workout, but still be small enough to fit conveniently within the Xavier Mansion, what would the weights she lifted need to be made of? Oh man, they'd have to be ultra-dense. I'm trying to remember very dense things. Osmium. Um, Osmium is very dense. As I recall, isn't osmium one of those uh, metals from the periodic table that kind of blows up if it touches water? Or was that a different column? It's been a long time. Um, no, osmium is a transition metal, and I think it's pretty stable. I know it's used in pen nibs. Well, that's probably for the best, because it would suck to be working out, touching a metal, where as soon as you started to sweat on it, it blew up. I mean, it's rogue. She probably wouldn't mind too much. Also, that is kind of par for the course with the danger room. Another reason I like Hubert's rogue is because of fashion. Okay, is this an outfit someone would actually wear? Well, probably not, but she really does rock the high-waisted Daisy Dukes, yellow floral bustier, and giant cowboy boots. Like, I feel fine about that. I feel great about that. Spoken like someone without labia. Uh, I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. Uh, I I gotta say, those shorts, just the fit of those shorts hurts to look at. It could be worse. I remember Boom Boom had a bathing suit once that, yikes. Yeah, but you got to figure that that's at least made out of stretchy fabric, assuming that these are denim. Oh, okay, fair enough. Well, anyway, the reason the well-dressed and possibly uncomfortable rogue is throwing a boulder at Iceman is that he has dared to continue to ask what the hell they're doing and where the hell they're going. And Rogue actually only kind of sort of knows. Like you alluded to earlier, Jay, she only absorbed bits and pieces of Gambit's memories. So she knows that they need to go to, in this case, Seattle, and that it's got something to do with Gambit's weird, mysterious, dark past, but she doesn't really know why or what that past is. Iceman, meanwhile, has come along basically to keep her from doing significant damage to herself or others. He's still experimenting with his powers post-possession by Emma Frost, and he's been using them in much, much more protean, somewhat Age of Apocalypse evocative ways. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is the whole Mikhail and Emma showed him how to use his powers more and how much of it was just, boy, Iceman looks cool in AOA, huh? Let's have him do some of that stuff. Well, and Iceman looked cool when Emma Frost took over his body. Iceman looks cool when he's all jaggedy and made of ice, and fortunately has not yet reached the phase where he is nothing but ice and cargo shorts. (laughs) I remember that era. I can't be too mad at it. I've spent a lot of my life wearing cargo shorts, I will freely admit. They're extremely comfortable, and they have a lot of room for stuff. They do. Gambit is responsible for providing us with the narration from this issue, including a lot of fairly self-aware bits. Onboard computer kicks in. Hide the birdie with a holographic mask. 
but you can't hide from yourself that easily. This kind of reminds me of the old video game Bastion by Supergiant Games, you know, where it's got that that grizzled old narrator that talks about what's going on in the game as the main character makes different decisions. Yeah, I sort of think of him as Bastion Sam Elliott. Bastion Sam Elliott, yeah. But that also reminds me of a YouTube parody video someone made where the Bastion narrator got put into a bunch of other video games. Like, I remember him talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. Anybody running that fast is really just running from themselves. When I saw Bastion in the outline, I sort of assumed that you were talking about the villain, and I was very confused when it, that it just said Bastion Sonic trailer. You know, Bastion Sonic trailer. No, that Bastion, I don't like him as much. Gambit looks fucking rad. Like, Hubert is really just killing it with the design of this issue. Gambit's trench coat is ridiculous. It's got these giant coat pauldrons sticking out over his shoulders, and they look super epic in the thick Seattle rain, and they're so impractical, and I love them. That was kind of a 90s fashion thing. To that level, though? I mean, this is like some World of Warcraft level stuff. I mean, probably not quite to that level, but definitely to the level of the jacket that he wears later. Okay, that's fair. Well, it's not just fashion that's a little over the top. The narration, just like in the Wolverine and Gambit Victims miniseries, is in these playing card-shaped boxes all at different angles, but the dialogue is still at a standard 90-degree axis angle. I don't know if that was just the letterer being annoyed, as one of our listeners suggested on our forum, or if uh, it just was done that way to be a little clearer. But either way, it's silly and it's fun. It works. It's, it's okay. I am. I can deal with it. I do. I do really like the playing card shaped bits. And honestly, I think the decision to keep the the text upright in them was probably a good one for legibility. Maybe we could draw out an unnecessary metaphor of Gambit finding stability of purpose within the chaos of his life, and that's why the words are straight across and the no. panels are not. No, not everything is a metaphor. Sometimes nothing is a metaphor. Sometimes that show C Lab is. Sometimes. Only sometimes. Now, Gambit finally intercepts Team Rogue, or at least half of Team Rogue, at a bar just after Iceman has prevented her from touching someone there, and she has left in a huff. Back when I first joined the X-Men, Bobby, I used to touch people all the time. Just a little. Sneak a power here, a memory there. And the more I did it, the more afraid I got to do it again. Not much of a life if I have to steal it from other people now, is it? It's really nice to see them acknowledging that. Uh, Rogue was very, very cavalier about using her powers when she first joined the X-Men, and of course before she joined the X-Men. And that's become less and less the case over time, and especially since she and Gambit got together. Yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, is just this was the 90s rogue people wanted to write, one that was much more angsty about not being able to touch the character that was now her love interest. But it's nice to at least hang a lampshade on it, you know? Yeah, and again, I think it's a change that's worth acknowledging, and there's a lot of value in addressing inconsistencies, using using retcons um, to address inconsistencies. So... Rogue also sees this as as destroying her last chance for love because Rogue is nothing if not absolutist and highly dramatic. So she heads out. Iceman is immediately set upon by the guys in the bar who realize that they're both mutants. And fortunately for him, although he could honestly probably take them with no problem, Gambit drops through the ceiling to to you know save the day for some value of save. After that, they go to where Gambit's pretty sure Rogue would have ended up, based on her having some of his memories, which is this old, abandoned, The Last of Us level of decayed theater. It's very dramatic. It reminds me a lot of the old, decaying theater that the 4 and 20 Blackbirds, you remember those vampires from X Factor, hung out in? Distinctly. Oh man, yeah, this this is totally where drama kids go to hook up, which I guess makes sense because Rogue and Gambit are very dramatic kids and would very much like to hook up. Yeah, I feel like watching Rogue beat Gambit up in the remains of a decaying theater is like having an uncomfortably direct lens into someone's high school sexual fantasies. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But man, what a gorgeous scene. Like, I've talked about Hubert's fashion and design. I also really love his staging of this scene, just the flow of one panel to the next to the next. Because by and large, it's just the two of them talking to each other. The punching doesn't really come until later. 
That's another function, actually, that those Gambit card captions serve. They're an extremely good vehicle for directing the eye through the page and directing and, and continuing motion because of the oblique ways that they're set around the panels. Totally. But it's also just the body language. Like, there's this one panel as Rogue is starting to despair that things will never work out, and she just wraps herself up in these ripped-up red curtains. Like, she's wearing her kind of skimpy outfit, and all of a sudden just covering herself to that degree with whatever's handy and the way her eyes are turned down. Like, you wouldn't even really need dialogue in that panel to understand where Rogue is at emotionally. So... Gambit really wants to comfort Rogue, but he won't tell her the truth. He does, however, offer her another option. He basically says, look, I, you can touch me. I want you to know what's happening. I want you to know to, to, to deal with whatever it is that's, that's harming you. Just, just absorb my mind again. It's cool. So this is weird because Gambit frames it as rogue needing to take the next step herself like somehow she has all of this personal stuff to work through also yeah but he also specifically uses the phrase i want you inside me so he does he does it's true yeah i don't know i mean i do know that rogue has been portrayed as somebody who keeps running away because she's afraid of what might happen if she actually could be close to someone because she's been hurt in the past But this part seems pretty cut and dry. Gambit clearly did some really awful stuff, and Rogue doesn't know what it is. Like, maybe he could just use his words, and then she could decide whether she wants to commit or not. Right. Ah, well. Like, this is is what happens when you are in a book that treats Scott Summers and Jean Grey as a really healthy relationship. (laughs) A fair point. And so we don't really get much in the way of resolution. We have all of this yelling and all of this talking and all of these gestures and all of this flying around and punching each other and charging up objects. And then the two characters just walk away from each other. Well, okay, Rogue flies away, but she says she needs to be on her own and she quits the X-Men and Gambit goes to mope around Seattle. What we get at this point is a brief coda, and it's a brief coda that is going to get give us the biggest hint that we're going to have for a while as to what exactly Rogue is running from and Gambit is trying to avoid dealing with. And that hint comes in the deeply glamorous lurking in the shadows form of Mr. Sinister, with whom it turns out Gambit has a hell of a lot of history. Oh, yeah. And Sinister being Sinister is all cryptic about how soon Gambit will have to play the hand he was dealt, because Sinister loves getting in on other people's metaphors and symbolism as well. So I actually, I love that Sinister is a significant part of Gambit's backstory. That works really well for me in ways that inserting Sinister into stories doesn't always. And I got to admit that it's mostly for aesthetic reasons. Like, I feel like these guys come from the same aesthetic world. They do. I mean, I think it was, was it Mark Silvestri who designed Mr. Sinister? Like, it's not the same artist that designed the two of them, but they both have that level of peacocking excess. Well, and I mean, we've seen all of the, all of the thieves and assassins guilds and the weird, semi-futuristic, deeply anachronistic bullshit neon situation going on there. And again, I like that is that is where Sinister belongs. That is that that makes absolute sense to me. I feel like they would both be at home in in one case a slightly grungier, in one case a slightly glamour version of hackers. No, I I disagree with you wholeheartedly. Huh. I just want to see them in hackers. I just want all the 90s things I like to be in the same place, I think. Neither of them pixelates particularly well. I don't know. There was that one Genesis game. Gambit looked pretty good in that. No, but the thing is, the thing with Hackers is that the glam and the wildness is very much a queer DIY aesthetic. And that's not really either of their thing. No, what they belong in is Jupiter Ascending. Another movie I have yet to see that's on the list with Ghost Rider. Oh, shit, Miles, you gotta see it. It's amazing. Uh, So I've heard. It's a thing. (laughs) Well, anyway... We'll get to what the deal is with Gambit and Sinister and their deep, dark past together later. We find out a lot more about that in Nicias' Gambit ongoing series, the one that I mentioned earlier. And around the same time in X-Men, we find out the details of just what Gambit did wrong. Short version, Gambit led the Marauders to the Morlock Tunnels for the Mutant Massacre in exchange for Sinister first taking out and then returning a small amount of his brain. Right. I mean, Gambit didn't know it was going to go that badly, but uh, still... Bad move, Remy. 
comics, man. So that's it for Fabian Nicieza for this formative 90s era of X-Men. And I gotta say, goddamn, like so many of my favorite parts of the early and mid-90s X-Men are Fabian. Yeah, absolutely agreed. I, I feel like really an era ended when he began phasing out of, of, of the main X line, but this is, is really kind of the last, it, it's last struggling breath and really, really sorry to see him go. Me too. But at least he got to write really fun Gambit and Rogue interactions there at the end. And at least he got out before Onslaught. Good call. I fear we won't be as lucky. And that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 326, a single-sized issue, The Nature of Evil. Not, surprisingly, Onslaught. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings. And we go basically right into the aftermath of that issue with Gambit and his red eyes brooding on the roof of the X-Mansion in shorts. I don't know what it is about shorts that seems less dignified than pants. I mean, they're absolutely the appropriate garment to wear on your lower half for a lot of the year in a lot of different climates, but they just look a little silly. He's brooding casually. Brooding casually. Casual brood, yeah. Now I'm just imagining the brood wearing shorts. That's a weird image. Everyone in cargo shorts. That's, that's, that's the newest variant cover craze. I love this plan. Marvel, get on it. No. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is because of the nature of cargo shorts, this is a plan that you yourself can enact on your issues pretty easily with a Sharpie. Oh, that's true. I mean, and let's be real, there were so many pouches people were wearing all throughout X-Men history, like putting them on the sides of your legs on shorts instead of on weird bullet straps, that's actually a lot more reasonable. Yeah, although it really looks silly when it's Iceman in just that. <laughs> I think that's part of why I love that look so very much. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I would, in fact, I would argue that that look is in fact the precise inverse of Mr. Sinister. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> Gambit, despite being all mysterious and dark, and he has made some genuine close friends over the years, and one of those is Storm, who shows up to check on him on the roof, because, you know, roofs aren't too hard for her, what with the flying around. I am always here for Storm and Gambit friendship stuff. Is she also wearing shorts? Uh, no, but she is wearing this really cool version of her old 70s costume, you know, the black one with that sort of hoop in the middle that connected the two parts. But the bottom half in this case is pants, and it actually looks really awesome. Remember, this is before she got a new costume at the end of the Storm miniseries. Yeah, this is very, very clearly sort of an advanced take on it, though, because that costume very much evokes this one. I think you're totally right. And she asks how he's doing, and he, of course, changes the subject, because remember, Dark Secret, and asks how she's doing with the whole Marrow thing, you know, where she had to rip out Marrow's heart because Marrow weirdly put a detonator on it. And she's like, eh, I'm good. But Gambit asks some leading questions, clearly asking for some advice without asking for some advice, wondering if Storm thinks that people like Marrow could really change, if Marrow were to try to be better, if she really could. And Storm basically says, well, I think people can change what they do. I don't know if they can really change their true nature. Gambit, just use your words. Ask the real question you want to ask. You'll get a less painful answer. I mean, maybe don't mention the mutant massacre quite yet, but... You know, he could be a little more specific. Okay, if someone you knew did a really bad thing, like, hypothetically, a thing that got a lot of people killed, like, hypothetically, maybe some people you knew, like hypothetically like a lot of them maybe in a sewer i'm not not saying necessarily in a sewer but like people die in sewers a lot but like if that happened and maybe they didn't know for sure but like they kind of knew something really bad was going on like really bad was going on and they definitely like like threw in with with this guy who was extremely creepy and and took away part of their brain like as a payment thing although this was kind of awesome and anyway like and also that person just stole shit all the time. Would you think they were a bad person? Like all the time. It's so much stealing. Seriously. So, so, so much, so much stealing share. Storm blinks twice and there's a 50% chance of whether she electrocutes Gambit or goes off on adventures with him immediately. I mean, she probably just shrugs and it's like, no, you're good. Yeah, probably. Inside, Boom Boom of X-Force is watching Sabretooth in his holodeck prison. In the, remember, he's being kept in the danger room and shown very natural, serene surroundings to sort of chill him out. It's, it's a very Disney setting. It's a very Disney princessy setting, specifically. 
And Princess Sabretooth comes right up to the glass to stare at Boom Boom, and for the first time, she starts to wonder if he really is a better person or if there's something dark still inside, and she closes the viewing window. Well, and if he's really as helpless and as, as now innocent as he has made himself out to be. That gives Gambit the perfect opportunity to jump into the danger room and pull a Wolverine by telling Sabretooth that he knows he's more evil than he's letting on, he knows he knows what he did, and he's not going to let him off the hook. Now, we know that Gambit and Sabretooth have a lot of history. Among other things, Sabretooth attempted to kill Gambit's um, adoptive brother, definitely killed the woman he'd been hooking up with, and was, was overall a raging jerk to him on a number of occasions. We also know that Gambit's issues with Sabretooth go way deeper than that. Again, this is the mutant massacre stuff that's going to come up later. Right. And Gambit is mad, and Gambit gets mean. He keeps using the danger room to show Sabretooth pictures of all of his victims, one after another. Well, not all of them. That would take an entire series, let alone an entire issue. Narrating about each one as he shows each of them. Gambit is clearly out for emotional blood here. Yeah, he's clearly taking a page from the book of Rory Campbell. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. And one of those scenes is, Jay, the one that you mentioned, the one where Sabretooth was dangling Gambit's brother and Gambit's lady friend over the edge of a roof and then dropped one of them saying, oops. And that just keeps looping. Oops, 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 oops. And as Storm shows up to get Gambit the hell out of there and presumably give him a good talking to, the holograms all disappear and we just see Sabretooth in a small cage. And after a beat of nothing happening in one panel, the next one he just says, oops. And I don't know if it's deliberate, but I really like the idea that maybe Sabretooth would have been okay until Gambit fucked with him to that level just here in this scene. Mm, I think what's pretty heavily implied from the earlier stuff is that Gambit accelerated an inevitable process that was already going on. That may be true. I mean, Sabretooth does have a healing factor, and even though Wolverine shish-kebobbed Sabretooth's brain, like, we know that shit grows back. Faster, stronger, better. Now, in three additional colors. In an entirely different part of the plot, Beast and his striped brown suit are speaking about the legacy virus at a World Health Organization conference. You remember back when when the U.S. was in the World Health Organization? I I think we're going to be again soon. That'll be nice. Do you find everything about the handling of pandemics in this era just incredibly depressing to read in 2020? Well, and it especially gets weird here because there's the 2020 thing and there's also the fact that the legacy virus was clearly intended to be an AIDS allegory and for the most part was. But what we see here as Beast talks about this dangerous plague is Professor Xavier suddenly stepping in from the audience, well, floating in. He's in his uh, high-tech hover chair, which doesn't really seem very stealthy for somebody who's not supposed to be a mutant. And yells at Beast that, no, it's probably not a real problem at all because there were so few documented cases. Maybe these were just pre-existing conditions. First of all, I don't think that the chair outs him as a mutant. It just outs him as having alien friends. I guess that's true. This is the Marvel Universe, and, like, everybody knows either S.H.I.E.L.D. or an alien. Second, I, I don't know why, but this scene has intense vibes of the diversity panel very near the beginning of Chasing Amy for me. Huh, yeah, Hooper X really would have changed the dynamic of this scene. Probably for the better. Maybe. But after that, Renee Majcomb from Genosha stands up saying, hey, a bunch of the mutates in Genosha, like over 300 got the legacy virus, it's totally a real thing. Oh, and Xavier's like, oh, probably, a pre- probably pre-existing conditions. Like, literally, he says that. Yeah, and Val Cooper jumps in as well. It's very awkward until it becomes clear that this was all a deliberate setup. I don't know about with Renee Majcomb, but at least between Beast, Xavier, and Val Cooper, after it was revealed that the legacy virus was starting to target humans as well, they feel like the only way to keep mutants safe, and in some ways to keep humans safe, is to minimize the threat. And that's the part that really bugs me in 2020, given how much minimization we continue to see of COVID. But... I think it's even harsher when you look at this as an AIDS allegory. Oh, absolutely. All, absolutely. 
Yeah. And I don't know how deliberate the writing is around that, because here is where we start to see the legacy viruses metaphor get a little bit more diffuse. Like Moira McTaggart and Excalibur are watching this uh, series of speeches from their headquarters on Muir Island and talking about how, well, it's not really a virus. It's more of a designer gene. And I don't know if they just decided the metaphor aspect of the legacy virus was played out or if they were going somewhere with this. Honestly, the whole storyline kind of fizzles, so it's hard to say, but I don't feel comfortable about any of this. Yeah, I mean, it's, (laughs) to some extent, it definitely evokes the government lack of response to AIDS early on, especially if, if I highly recommend, by the way, if you haven't listeners going and finding what you can on the history of organizations like ACT UP and the advocacy and horrifying controversy around AIDS in, in especially the eighties and nineties, like this is, this is something where even a few years make a huge, huge difference. I remember having a conversation with a friend who's, who's four years younger than me about um specifically about about rent and the ways that that we that that we reacted to it and the stuff we responded to and how much it was mediated by what we learned about AIDS growing up and just how very very different our perceptions of that were based on quality of sex ed based on publicly available inter- information based on the level of antiretrovirals that were available yeah when when each of us like were teenagers and if you are if you are significantly younger than me, or even not that much younger than me, and I, I'm 38, like having a clear sense of just how devastating AIDS was, and just how radically both insufficient and bigoted the public and official responses were to, is even even after living through 2020, it's hard to fathom. Yeah, fair. And I mean, people older than us, especially in the gay community, I know saw so much more just horror uh, than than we did. I mean, we were just at sort of the the tail end of the really bad part, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we were we were at an age where basically as we were as we were hitting puberty and of ages where people assumed people were sexually active. So where you were getting information, actually getting information about it the narrative around it shifted really significantly like during that window. Totally, yeah. So, I don't know. Hard to say what's deliberate as far as the metaphor. I do think it becomes less and less effective here. And not that it was ever super effective being that indirect, but uh, it's a weird place to go. Another place it goes is toward Onslaught. Because after this speech... Beast and Xavier have a big heart-to-heart where Beast tries to give Xavier a pep talk, but Xavier is still feeling like he's failing at so many things. The legacy virus is causing more and more death. The rehabilitation of Sabretooth clearly isn't going well. And yeah, yeah, the dark parts of Xavier are growing inside him. And that unfortunately leads to either that creepy stuff from the X-Men Micronauts miniseries or Onslaught. I'm going to go ahead and say that Onslaught is the worst metaphor for depression that I've ever seen legit although i gotta say if you're gonna experience depression one way or the other it might as well have a red and purple set of armor yeah but destroying the entire universe i don't think he was trying to destroy the entire universe in fact i don't really know what onslaught was trying to do it's very unclear uh nothing good so let's take a tangent uh, or take a trip away from the legacy virus away from rogan gambit to another set of phonetically accented characters, the Guthries in the Uncanny X-Men 1995 annual Growing Pains. This is written by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Bob McLeod, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings. And man, I went, I, I read this and then went back and checked the credits and had had one of those light bulb moments. It was like, oh yes, Bob McLeod inks. That's why Sam looks so much like Sam. Yeah, he's still got his 90s floppy hair, but something about that facial structure is very early New Mutants in a very cool way. Well, and the other Guthries look related to him, which is impressive. This this issue is about the, the two mutant Guthrie siblings, Sam and Paige, teaming up because their younger sister, Joelle, has joined the creepy cult Humanity's Last Stand. 
So they go out there to the Guthrie farm with Storm and Bishop and Wolverine, although you're right that it's mostly the Guthrie siblings who are on this adventure until the very end. I feel like the comic was maybe going to go somewhere with that. At one point, the Guthrie's mentioned that Bishop and Storm would stand out too much to go to a Humanity's Last Stand mission, implying, you know, race. But then a lot of members of Humanity's Last Stand are black, so I don't know. Maybe it's just that Storm and Bishop are much taller than anyone else. I, I sort of assume that that's the case. I mean, there's also a, and, you know, Wolverine is Wolverine. I mean, fair enough, right? I assume that at this point it's just because none of, it's just that none of the three of them can pass as, like, regular people anymore. They they just radiate weird superhero. That's fair. They should have brought Iceman. Iceman and his cargo shorts. I don't know. He's not very good at undercover work either. I guess not many of the X-Men are, now that I think about it. I mean, Sage, but Sage was mainly good at being undercover in a weird bondage club. Well, Sage was also largely undercover by retcon. There is that. But we are indeed focusing on the Guthries, and I feel like since we're going to the Guthrie farm and we're seeing a bunch of them, it's time for a Guthrie roll call! So, we have streamlined the Guthrie family a bit for this. Again... There are some kids who appear and disappear and reappear, their hair color changes, etc. But uh, here's what we have been able to work out as the definitive Guthrie lineup. So at this point in continuity, the only Guthrie mutants we know about are Sam and Paige, and at least in the Age of Apocalypse, their sister Elizabeth. But... But we will eventually see them joined by three more mutant Guthrie siblings. Those are Josh, who is Icarus, Melody, who is Arrow... And Jeb, who is Jeb? Does he does he have a code name? Maybe it's like Jeb Bush, and it's his code name is Jeb with an exclamation point at the end. I mean, Bling has an exclamation point at the end of her name, so it's not unprecedented. Are you implying that Molly Ivins gave him a code name? It's possible. We also have three non-mutants, at least non-mutants as far as we know. There's Joel, uh, the character who's the focus of this issue, and then there were Lewis and Sissy, who may or may not be twins. They're certainly younger. Post-decimation, Dark Beast will almost kill Lewis trying to activate his theoretical latent mutation. Presumably, therefore, Lewis is not a mutant. And depending on who draws the Guthries, we have at least one other sibling, at least sometimes. So, minimum, we have ten goddamn Guthrie siblings. Thomas and Lucinda were busy! The important thing to remember is that the Guthries aren't really a set constant so much as they are... A potential range, sort of sort of like orbitals and atoms. They're a probability zone. Now I'm just imagining Cannonball blasting around the nucleus of an atom like he's an electron in that traditional diagram, and it actually looks pretty awesome, and he should replace all electrons from now on. The point is, there are generally around 6 to 12 Guthries. Exactly. Well, what's Joelle up to in this story? Joelle is there because she has it bad for a dude named Preacher, and Preacher is will eventually find out actually a mutant with some precognitive or cross-timeline abilities. He's also a very good painter, but specifically he appears to have a window to what Miles read as the Age of Apocalypse, what I thought could be interpreted as somewhere between that and Bishop's timeline. Either way, the leader of Humanity's Last Stand, or at least their field leader, a guy named Garibaldi, has convinced Preacher that his visions are what will happen if mutants aren't stopped. It's interesting when Joelle is confronted by her siblings that she talks about how, well, why wouldn't she go with humanity? Why wouldn't she go with something that could make her special when there was this other thing that could make her sibling special? It's actually kind of a cool, interesting take on sibling rivalry in a world where some kids are going to be mutants and others aren't. Okay, but that's actually still really not a good excuse for joining bigoted cults. Oh, no, I'm not saying it's a good excuse. I'm just saying it's an interesting excuse. Honestly, it reminds me a lot of what you hear about, again, the arguments for people's, people joining you know, Friends of Humanity's real-life analogs, being, which is basically feeling like they are entitled to something that is being taken away from them by virtue of other people having other identities that are acknowledged. I think you're absolutely right. And let's talk a little bit about Humanity's Last Stand. What's the deal with this organization? Humanity's Last Stand is somewhere between a cult, a political movement, and a survivalist compound. It's actually very impressively constructed. It must have taken a long time to build. I guess. Um, it's, it's kind of got the look of a very, very, of, of quick-rise barracks, but um, with, with concrete foundations. 
there are lots of Creed for President signs all around here. So we didn't mention it, but we did briefly see Graydon Creed, the anti-mutant, bigoted son of Mystique and Sabretooth, consider a run for president at the end of X-Men 45. There's this growing anti-mutant sentiment at this point, thanks in large part to the murders committed by Gene Nation. Creed is maybe capitalizing on it, and already he's got supporters here at the extreme bigoted fringe. Again, in this, the year 2020, it feels a little ridiculous to need a fictional metaphor to see what happens when a fascist appeals to bigoted fanatics. I think it's absolutely a valid parallel, yeah. I mean, this story is very prescient in that regard. Oh, yeah, unquestionably. Now, this is this is an aggressively anti-mutant group, obviously, and Sam and Paige briefly managed to infiltrate it at least for enough time to confront Joel before they get caught as mutants. The group manages to capture Sam pretty quickly. Um, Sam is able to get away, but at that point they they get Paige. And specifically, they're working with sentinels. They're working with smaller and pinker sentinels than we're used to seeing, which you may recognize, at least by their names, as Nimrod sentinels. Right. Nimrod was this ultra sentinel from one of the many dark future timelines in the Marvel Universe who came back to the present day due in large part to a fish and a magic amulet. It was weird. But Nimrod was this major, major X-Men antagonist for like an entire era. This one ultra sentinel almost killed the X-Men repeatedly and did kill at least one member of the Hellfire Club. And so... To see the Nimrod Sentinel suddenly being developed in the present day of the Marvel Universe honestly should be a lot more terrifying than is presented as being here. I mean, come on, haven't these people read Powers of Ten? Well, these are clearly not the same Nimrod Sentinels we've seen before. They don't have nearly the same kind of powers. As far as I can tell, most of what they have in common with that Nimrod is that they're smaller than the standard Sentinels, they're pinker, and they're a little more sarcastic. <laughs> I like that sarcasm is how you can tell that a robot's more advanced. Well, that degree, that degree of, of, of self-awareness and of, of AI, yeah. I guess they have come a ways away from, It appears to be the ace of spades. Like, you probably couldn't convince these sentinels to go fight the sun. So this organization appears to be entirely newcomers, but as we are going to find out, it is being led by a member of a family whose name may be familiar to you. That is the Trasks. The Trasks, of course, uh, were the family that spawned Bolivar Trask, played pretty well by Peter Dinklage in the Days of Future Past movie. He was the anthropologist who created the mutant hunting robots, the Sentinels, in the first place. His son Larry, as it turned out, was a mutant whose powers were only kept in check by a very fancy necklace. Larry activated the second generation of Sentinels before being talked out of it. This guy, though, is Simon Trask. He's basically Bolivar's more boring brother. It kind of, it's kind of like how Humanity's Last Stand is basically the Friends of Humanity's more boring brother. Yeah, these, these are like the acquaintances of Humanity. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I think this is something that X-Men is guilty of. There are so many fanatical anti-mutant organizations that invariably some of them are just going to be boring. I feel like you could just stick to a few big ones and that might be better. What's a little sad is that that's actually a pretty accurate reflection of hate groups. I guess that's true. Uh, it's probably for the best. They're not better at cooperating than they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Sam manages to get back to the visiting X-Men and bring them in. They come in as the cavalry. They save everybody. Wolverine, at this point, identifies the Sentinels as Nimrods. And again, shouldn't you be more freaked out, dude? They're, like, lower-level Nimrods? I don't know. I, I It really bothers me that they just drop that with no context and no concern. Seriously. But the good guys do win. Joelle is brought back to her family after realizing that maybe humanity's last stand's murderous robots mean that the organization's not so hot. And Preacher goes missing. He's actually going to turn up a bit later. But for now, all we know is that he's off somewhere painting sunny pictures of Joelle that wouldn't look that out of place in your friendly neighborhood head shop. And Preacher seems like a, a good dude, and I'm not just saying that because he's got this, like, red-headed, ponytailed hippie look that I really like. 
you know, once he realizes that humanity's last stand are a bunch of jerks and they're not trying to prevent the dark future he sees, they're just trying to, like, kill a bunch of mutants, he backs out and brings Joel with him. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that his his decision to leave the group isn't when the X-Men attack, it's when he realizes that they are brutalizing random mutants. Like, he he wants to prevent his visions from coming to fruition and the leaders of this group have convinced him that they are the best way for that to happen but he's not really there for any of the aggressively anti-mutant rhetoric and he's definitely definitely not there for the brutality exactly yeah so uh good on you preacher like you said we'll see him again he'll actually be in the next uncanny x-men annual which is also by terry kavanaugh i wonder if um preacher is the equivalent of howard mackey's obsession with kandra I, I was going to say, I wonder if it's um, Terry Kavanaugh's character from a D&D campaign. <laughs> <laughs> oh, chaos, I miss you. Joelle will never really have another focal story. We are going to see her again, but unfortunately, the next time we see her, it will be in that Chuck Austin story where Archangel has sex with Husk in the sky over nope. Husk's mom. Nope. I'm just saying, I can see why Paige resents her siblings after that. Simon Trask, oh boy. He's later going to make a fake version of the Mutant Liberation Front to make mutants look bad, but then the Punisher and Carl the Executioner are going to team up to stop Simon. Oh, the Marvel Universe. Oh, Carl. Oh, Carl. Much like our listeners, Carl probably has questions, but the listeners are the ones that wrote in. So, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, any Marvel superhero teams up with any musician. Who are they? This was inspired by a 2009 Punisher Eminem comic, so the obvious and easy choice is taken. Well, that obviously knocks out my first option, which would be Punisher and Taylor Swift. But a close second and a this is so obvious it bugs me that no one has done it is Ghost Rider and Johnny Cash. I mean, are you just saying that because Sam Elliott was in the Ghost Rider movie? I'm not. I'm saying that because they are a perfect genre and aesthetic match. They really are, actually. Yeah, no, I would, I would be a great big fan of that. Um, I would, I would also be be there for Warlock and Daft Punk. I think you'd probably also get along very well with They Might Be Giants. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're totally right. For me, maybe it's just because I have Guthrie's on my mind. But think about it: Cannonball, Sam Guthrie, and Woody Guthrie, famous protest folk singer, or for that matter, Woody Guthrie's son, Arlo Guthrie. Like, either way, you have good-natured silliness that mixes charmingly with a dedicated passion for justice and the protection of the downtrodden. Okay, it's gotta be Arlo Guthrie, and I will tell you why. Okay. So, you know the New Mutants and their whole pop culture obsession? Sure. Imagine a New Mutants annual based around Alice's Restaurant. Oh, man. Would that be more or less weird than the uh, Anacenti special where they went to that media theory place? Okay, less weird. Everything is less weird than that. Probably more wholesome, although I, I will qualify with my, my perpetual drum to beat that, that while it's not the one anyone's heard, the absolute best Arlo Guthrie song is and always will be in my darkest hour. I'll add that to my giant list of media from this episode. Okay, okay. Oh, God, it's so good. It's such a good song. I also feel like Ilyana Rasputin would get along initially very well with the satanic doo-wop band Twin Temple, who I encourage listeners to check out. They're wonderful. Uh, they have similar dark, tongue-in-cheek senses of humor, but I feel like Twin Temple would then get pretty freaked out once it became clear that Ilyana was actually genuinely kind of evil. Yeah, fair. And because I have to bring up Gabby Kinney every time I possibly can, Honey Badger, I think she would be super into over-the-top silly fantasy metal, like either the pirate metal band Ailstorm or the science fiction fantasy metal band Glory Hammer. Sir, we are friends with an actual punk band named Honey Badger, and I'm deeply offended that that's not where you went with this, because I think she would dig them pretty hard, too. You know, she totally would, yeah. Okay, well, Honey Badger, if you're listening, and Honey Badger, if you're listening, you guys should hang out. Clearly. Another anonymous listener asks, likewise on Tumblr, what is the difference between the Mkron crystal and Otherworld in terms of being a nexus of all realities? Oh boy, that's a great question. You know how we were talking about how there were all these different anti-mutant hate groups and maybe there should be fewer to keep things simple? Uh, well, maybe that. But, Otherworld... So Otherworld, as we first met it in the Captain Britain series way back in the day, and as we've seen a lot more of it in Ten of Swords these days, 
It's a pocket dimension in between all of the different dimensions and universes of the multiverse, because remember, dimensions are inside universes, kind of. Otherworld is an actual location, like it's a plane of existence. It's got its own different districts, which we actually saw a lot of recently in Ten of Swords. And it also has its own set of citizens with this complicated culture and set of responsibilities, all about guarding the intersections between realities to make sure things stay relatively stable. And that's not to be confused with Other Place, which is occasionally the name of the limbo that Ilyana Rasputin used to rule. Right. Limbo can connect different locations, but it can only connect different locations within the main Marvel reality, or I guess whichever reality Ilyana's in at the time. It can't go across realities the way Otherworld inherently does. Now, the Emkron Crystal, it's also kind of, sort of, a location. It's geographically weird it's kind of like the tardis it's bigger on the inside and it has this ancient city inside it this ancient abandoned city which we can only assume is an artifact of the civilization that created the crystal what the crystal was created for as far as i know was to house and protect and keep stable this neutron star in the middle that itself is the nexus of all matter and antimatter across the entire multiverse. That's where matter and antimatter came from and spread out to every single different universe. Thus, that neutron star and thus the Emkron crystal are connected to every universe. God, this is implausible. It surely is. And if the crystal's damaged, either physically or in the case of the Age of Apocalypse, through the timeline being bent too far... That neutron star can then become unstable and draw the entire multiverse into an all-encompassing, across-all-time-and-space black hole. Or a crystal wave, as the case may be. So, yeah. That's a problem. It is. So, if Otherworld was destroyed, we'd have all kinds of chaos because then the multiverse would start really messing with each other and uh, wouldn't stay separate the way that it should. But reality would still be intact. If the Emkind crystal was destroyed, yeah, that's it for literally everything. Basically, Otherworld is a very fancy and politically complicated border crossing, while the Emkron Crystal is a carefully guarded universal time bomb. Also, please never forget that Havoc is also sometimes a nexus of all realities. Oh yeah, that was because of uh, Mutant X, right? Yes, and I will I will come back to that series whenever I get the chance. I mean, anytime we get to work Bloodstorm, at least indirectly into a conversation, I'm in favor. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast and some of those tiers of support um get you acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts and it's funny miles that you brought up bloodstorm because the mic today actually goes to her progenitor or at least a version of her progenitor that is to say sexy dracula the thrill of forbidden touch dark secrets awakened by a stolen kiss passion in all its forms in the tattered remains of a once great theater. Now this, Dracula can get behind. But this is not the kind of resolution I would seek. After the rushing blood of that desire, that anger, that longing, Rogue and Gambit just walked away to continue their decidedly unsexy brooding. This story would have ended quite differently for you, would it have not, Mario Santos? You and yours would have continued that majestic dance of desperation, your pounding pulses quickening more and more as you flew around and threw cards at each other or whatever sort of mating rituals you non-vampires have. And C.J. Crawl. Even in Transylvania, we hear tales of the glorious, earnest embrace that fairly emanates from Castle's sexy crawl by the light of every full moon. No stories end in mere anticlimactic moping there, but instead in something far more visceral. Oh, I see what you did there with the uh, anticlimactic. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. 
You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Generation X heads back to a familiar haunt... Haunted by familiar leprechauns! That sounds right. Gambit joined the X-Men after rescuing a de-aged Storm from the Shadow King. Kinda, sorta. It's complicated. It's complicated? (laughs) Now I'm doing it too. I mean, Gambit is complicated because he has a complicated coat, uh, especially in this one of these issues, actually. I, I wrote a note about it. Oh, shit, uh, I just realized something. Um, Matt, you're going to need to use this for the tag, but I just realized that Sam Elliott might actually ride a ghost in Ghost Rider because I was complaining that no one rides ghosts in it, but he was a ghost rider with a horse. Oh, so in the horse might have been a ghost rider. Yeah, he might actually have ridden a ghost. <laughs> Anyway, let's try that again. (laughs) Okay, that's important to me, though.